If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello. Well, it's a real delight to sit with Francesca, who is the author of a really beautifully crafted group biography of five women living in Mecklenburg Square between the First World War and the end of the Second World War. There's the work of five biographies in it, all beautifully woven together. It's moving, it's judicious, it refuses to simplify some very complicated things. So it's really a, a pleasure to do this. And it's also very special to do this in, in Bloomsbury, isn't it? And at the time of year for street haunting, when you look in through the lighted windows and seven o'clock, the curtains aren't quite yet drawn and we can see into people's lives and imagine what goes on within. And that's what your book helps us to do. So I suppose my, my first question really is, is what was it when you were square haunting through, through London? What was it about Mecklenburg Square in particular that seemed perhaps more compelling than any other square or more compelling than Hampstead or Walthamstoke? Well, Mecklenburg Square is a, a first of all, it's so nice to be here with you, who I've admired for your work for so long. And it's so nice to be in the other side because I come to this bookshop all the time. This is quite surreal. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I don't know, I seem to get lost every time I come to Bloomsbury and always finding new kind of corners of it. And it's sort of impossible. It's a labyrinth. Um, and you're always coming across new blue plaques or new sort of churches or new squares that you don't know about. And Mecklenburg Square was one that I really didn't know about until I went in search of the blue plaque for HD, who I had studied at university and become very interested in the way that she wrote, rewrote the Greek myths, particularly her, her work on Helen of Troy. Um, and I knew that she'd lived in Mecklenburg Square during this kind of strange period of the First World War where she was translating Euripides and starting to work on these poems which took their voices from the heroines of Greek mythology like Eurydice and Cassandra. And meanwhile, her husband, Richard Aldington, was away fighting in the war and coming home and having this affair with the upstairs lodger and T.H. Lawrence had come to stay and it was all a sort of nightmare. So I'd been interested in that period of her life and I wanted to, to know and to see where it had taken place. But Mecklenburg Square is not really somewhere you just walk through by chance because it's right out on the eastern edge of Bloomsbury. It's not really a thoroughfare. The garden is the only garden in Bloomsbury that is still locked to non-residents. I think after the Second World War when lots of the railings were melted down for mm. aeroplanes and so then I think George Orwell campaigned to keep Bloomsbury Squares open so a lot of them became kind of public gardens but Mecklenburg Square they just grew hedges <laughs> so, so it's not really somewhere that you go to sort of sit and have a sandwich but when I did finally get there I was kind of intrigued to see even though the square looks very different to how it did then there are just a few kind of pockets of corners including the stretch where hd lived where you can where the, the buildings do look exactly as they were so you can actually look up at the balcony and in her novel bid me to live she describes the um sort of blue curtains that led out onto the balcony and there's a whole scene where she manages to leave the house and stands in the square kind of looking up at this room that she's yeah. just got out of yeah. um, so I, I, want, I want to bring it to places. HD yeah I, felt I knew the place well at yeah. that point yeah um, but so you'd just, imagined you'd imagined it all in advance <laughs> I think so but just anyway just to finish I yeah. then discovered how many other I knew that Virginia Woolf had lived in the same square and when I started researching and found out that other women some who I'd heard of others who I hadn't heard of had lived in the same place I 
started to wonder what it was, whether it was the square, whether it was Bloomsbury more widely, and whether there was some, whether it was just a total coincidence or whether there was something mm. they might all have in common. Can we just check the blue plaque situation? So when you were walking around, <laughs> what does English heritage tell you is going on in this, in this square? Um, well, not enough. I mean, it's got HD's dates are wrong um, <laughs> for a start. Um, there isn't a blue plaque to Eileen Power, for example. There wouldn't be one for Wolf because the place where she lived, number 37, was destroyed. And so where she lived is now part of Goodenough College. Although I've recently met someone from Goodenough College who has worked out exactly where in the house, in the current building, her room would have been, which formed the ending to my book because they now leave a copy of a room of one's own for, um, for the student who takes that room. Um, oh. <laughs> I sense interviews with those students through the generations yeah. coming on. Okay, um, so so there's going to need to be some revision of the the blue plaques after yeah. after your your book, I think. How did you go about choosing the five women that you decided on? There's a brilliant footnote at the end. Of this <laughs> really book, glad you read the tell, footnotes. I, I've totally read all the footnotes, um, and I was rewarded by the footnote that tells me about the women you didn't focus on. And of course, it threw into relief the, the women you did focus on and why you chose them. So just so that we've got your five in the, in the room from the beginning of this conversation, just give us a tiny little snippet about each of these five women that you, you decided on and, and mm. why you knew it had to be them. Mm. Well, I think I knew, well, first of all, there are were, there were lots of interesting men who lived in the square as well, I guess, but I decided I wanted it to be women because I thought that that there was an interesting kind of story to tell about Bloomsbury and about women who moved to a place and that I thought that maybe what they were all looking there for there was something to do with with the kind of wider story of what women at that time who wanted to be writers were looking for which was you know which is a room of one's own as a space where you could live in a different way and quite soon I narrowed it down to deciding I wanted it to be writers because I thought it would be a way to tell a story about the way women have written and have been written about which is I guess also the kind of thrust of a room of one's own and so so that did exclude mm. some other really interesting people partly also I guess practically writers leave more trace than yeah. than non-writers because they they tend to preserve their letters and tend to write diaries and they were your writers um, seem to have burnt their letters <laughs> well yeah I mean, but, okay so who too. so who do you end up with just give us your five people um, well HD. So there's hd yeah. the imagist poet then she was in mecklenburg square from 1916 to 1918 and she left in 1918 to move to cornwall and three uh, two years later in 1920 her very room was taken over by dorothy l sayers who had just been in the first graduation ceremony at Oxford to include women and she came to the square just knowing that she wanted to be a writer but without really having having anything to to show for herself yet and she was take she took on various freelance projects but she just insisted that she didn't want to be a teacher which was what most of her friends were doing that was the sort of accepted profession for a sort of middle class educated graduate um, but she knew that that wasn't what she wanted to do I guess I realised that all of them had come to the square at a sort of time of transition maybe in their lives and for her it was a question, it was the time when she was working out who she might be or wanted to be and it's hard with hindsight you know when you, you she's now she persevered through this year and went on to write her first detective novel and is now so loved and probably of all the people I write about I, Dorothy Sayers is the one who people people know about and she love but at this time it was all totally uncertain and the third chapter is on Jane Harrison who was a, a generation older than the other women she was born in 1850 and she went out to Cambridge in the 1870s with a reputation of being the cleverest woman in England but that in the 1870s that didn't get you that far <laughs> well it didn't get you a job did it? it didn't get you a job this chapter was a difficult one to write, I guess, because she came to Mecklenburg Square right at the end of her life. She'd she spent the vast part of her career kind of living quite precariously, going between kind of 
lectureships around the country and it wasn't until she was 48 that she was invited back to Newnham College in Cambridge where she wrote the books that really made her name. But in 1922 she kind of gave it all up and she decided she was going to reinvent herself totally which is a pretty amazing thing to do when you're 75 and she left the university which maybe we'll get on to, to why um, went to Paris and ended up in Bloomsbury and ended her life living amongst a kind of coterie of Russian intellectuals <laughs> is it uh, near the end? Francesca uses this this phrase about thinking thinking back through history, which can be um, quietly fortifying. And I think even mm. just hearing that about Jane Harrison starting again yeah, in her seventies, I'm already right. feeling the the quiet fortification of going back into these lives. All right, and we've got another scholar in here to talk um, about. Yeah, after, uh, the only one of these women who lived in the square for a long period is Eileen Power, who came in 1924 to take up a position at the London School of Economics, which was quite a new, quite radical, progressive university, which is co-educational. And she'd come from Cambridge, which is where Harrison had been, and I think was excited to join a faculty full of sort of radicals who were involved often in the Labour Party or in the kind of internationalist (coughs) pacifist movement. And so she lived in the square until she died very young in 1940. And there is a blue plaque to her neighbour, R.H. Tawney. The two of them taught together at the LSE. They ran seminars and they invited their students back to their kitchens where they held sort of informal discussion groups to kind of chart the future of of democratic socialism in England. So for her, she was, they were a kind of an anti-Bloomsbury set in a way, or a different, a different Bloomsbury to one of my final chapter who is Virginia Woolf who is sort of in a way the guiding spirit of the book I think and she lived in Mecklenburg Square just for one year the last year of her life she moved in in the week that the second world war was declared and I think this year in her life is always I mean if we know that she died in March 1941 and I think often it's seen as the the year before her suicide and there's a temptation to look in the year for kind of foreshadowings of that but I think just looking at this year as a kind of snapshot in isolation showed me how creative a year it was for her in lots of ways. And she was working on a novel between the acts. She was working on a memoir of her childhood. I think the war kind of raging around her really sent her back thinking over her her own life because she knew that you know, death could come at any moment. And also the move to Mecklenburg Square for her, I think houses had always been very important to her. and. This move that she did in 1904 from her family home in Kensington to Bloomsbury was always, she always wrote about that again and again as this moment of liberation and the moment of her becoming a writer. Um, And I think that house move is sort of a kind of emblem for the move that each of them we're doing in the book. And I love the sense of her reading back and thinking back through those other women in the square. Mm. But let's let's take what you say about um, Wolf's move from the the high, dark Victorian Kensington house to Gordon Square in 1904. And to her, this was this absolute hinge point into another way of living. And Mm. everything about your book made me think a lot about how those houses are arranged in ways which are different from the Victorian family home mm. with its, you know, hierarchy of servants yeah, in servants the basement. Exactly. Um, and La Virginia in her nursery could hear her father sort of thudding around upstairs and yes. she knew that she called it the brain of the house and she yeah, the yeah, absolutely. upstairs room. Absolutely. And then the nursery is at the, at the top. Mm. And so part, clearly part of this appeal of Mecklenburg Square is that some of the houses are divided up into, into boarding houses, that you can mm. just have one room. I, I was really struck, actually, by Jane Harrison's lecture in 1913, talking about how in the Victorian home, the drawing room is the, the woman's domain, but there's always somebody coming into the drawing room, whereas the man's study is inviolate. Yeah, and, and there's never two chairs there, she's that Brilliant. So, so Harrison had, before Wolf, really crystallised this sense of the woman needing the room of her own. Yeah, it's amazing actually when you read that that lecture to see the themes which Wolf took up. And Wolf did know Harrison and she invokes her as this kind of ghostly spirit at the yeah. beginning of Room of One's Own, so it's tempting to note a bit of a, sure. an echo there, which also is an interesting echo because they 
are because she she sort of speaks of Harrison in a room of one's own as an example of a woman intellectual who was able to to write the kind of books that Wolf is saying we need more of, you know, books that write women back into history and look at areas of history that hadn't been kind of uncovered before. But I guess also she was an example to Wolf of how a woman could could live a life or arrange a life, both kind of personally and, and also in the way that she you know, arranged her home. And I think, you know, for both of them and for all of them, and I guess, you know, for, for the book, I was thinking a lot about a room of one's own and being, you know, being a literal, the way that you might arrange, um, even, you know, how you arrange the furniture can be important for It's political. That's social history. Where are the chairs? What are <laughs> yeah, you sitting are the chairs? on? Oh, yeah. of course, Wolf does that in a, the Leaning Tower. You know, where, yeah. what angle do you get on the world from your chair? Mm. Um, so... To me, your, your first chapter, which is HD, sets out in great detail, actually, what she does with that room. Mm. So I wonder, if, since we've got this idea of the boarding house room, a new kind of living space with the chairs in different places, mm. give us a little bit of a sense of, of how HD arranged her, her bedsit room, um, perhaps, and... And what worked about it, and then what rapidly became distressing to her about that mm. setup, and I and I ask this with some emphasis because I feel so many of us have lived in bedsits and found them both liberating and also horrendously claustrophobic and on show, and all these these seem very modern questions. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, I guess HD moved to Mecklenburg Square with with her husband. And the way they kind of conceived their relationship from the very beginning was that it was going to be a kind of a marriage of equals. They were both poets. They wanted to to live kind of in partnership and collaborate on poetry together. And they neither of them wanted, you know, wanted hierarchy and so on. But I guess it was H.D. had a stillbirth in 1915, which really deeply traumatised her. And she always associated it also very much with the war happening outside and bringing sort of death within her and I think she always associated that with her husband who she found somewhat sort of callous after it and that was the moment of the this sort of widening gulf between them which deepened when he was going away to fight and then coming back and the, and you know was having this affair with this woman this sort of very glamorous woman Arabella York who mm. lived upstairs and she writes so many novels about this period. She wrote it over and over again. And in each of the different novels, the house takes on this really important symbol as as a kind of emblem of both of the relationship and also of her own sense of selfhood. She feels, I guess, very associated with the room and the house because that's her domain. She's left there when he's away and everything around her, you know, outside there's, you know, plains and gales of wind and um, and inside the house it's all everything is kind of in the wrong place and eventually she does this sort of self-obliterating gesture and allows Aldington and Arabella to use the main room and she kind of retreats upstairs um, to this sort of tiny attic I think then Bloomsbury the houses sort of got the rooms get smaller mm. as you go further up and they get sort of cheaper in the, in the boarding houses so mm. at the top you just have a kind of a tiny tiny room which I think was this one was converted from a bathroom um, so that's yeah. sort of where she was um, which is partly about not wanting to be seen I mean one, one feels very viscerally yeah. her horror of people visitors to the room being able to see her bed and her clothes yeah well the way they, they had this one big room which was divided by a kind of a screen and so the bed was not really separated from yeah. the living area and the bed you know was the sort of symbol of the dissolution of her marriage and I think whilst I think HD was very torn because I think she you know she wanted to live differently and experimentally mm. and in theory she was she was interested in you know in free love and in people not being possessive of each other but I think in practice and the way that this was happening she was you know, she was grappling yeah. seriously with what that might mean in practice and where that might leave her and and her work. And she was at this time she was doing a lot of translation from Euripides and she was focusing on the kind of female voices from the chorus who are kind of watching on powerless while war is, you know, engulfing everything and everyone that they've known and loved. And I think, yeah, it's a it's an insight into the kind of unimaginable pressures of living yeah. at that 
period of history. In a way, the whole method of your book emerges from that grappling that HD does over is it 40 years, she thinks, thinking back yeah. over that room. Because there's a sense in which you might open the book and look at the structure of it and think, well, some of these women only lived there for a year. Yeah. But actually what's so subtle and, and takes some thinking about in the, in the book is the way that you show how you have to think about the whole life before in order to yeah. understand how someone lived in their room for that year. And then <laughs> how that room house mm. affected all of life afterwards and yeah. you do show you shares that for hd she's rethinking that one little slice of life yeah over and over and over even having established herself in a happy relationship bringing up the child yeah definitely she had analysis with freud in the 30s and um, to sort of fortify her a bit for a, for the next world war and mm. to kind of address this period of writer's block she'd been suffering and he told her that he thought that she needed to go back to this period in Mecklenburg Square because he could tell that that something about it was was kind of stopping her and mm. I think what came out was what ultimately came out was actually was a creative question I think she'd she'd written these novels she started writing a novel about it as soon as she I think even during while she was in the square and carried it on after she left and through the 20s she wrote several different versions where which all take place in sort of different mm. timelines and they some of them are very tightly focused on that square period and others cover her childhood and go much further out one of them set in a Roman army camp and mm. some of them are interesting because they the marriage situation doesn't really come into it and it's the sort of trauma is the loss of this early female lover and then the kind of meeting of Briar, her female partner, after that. And it's um, it's that it's those relationships which are important. And then there are other mm-hmm. ones which are which much more focus on this sort of heterosexual marriage. Um, but she wanted all of those to be destroyed. She wrote destroy on all of them, although they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, it was published most of them in the 70s and 80s. So you can you can read them and compare them and it's fascinating and complicated Mm. Mm. but the book the version that she did publish in 1960 I think at its core is this other question which is about her as an artist and it centers on this sort of disagreement with this character who's very clearly D.H. Lawrence who during the period in the square seems to have told her that that a woman shouldn't try to write anything universal she's um she shouldn't try to take on a man's perspective she should just write from what she knows and hg ends the book with this incredibly powerful letter back where she's saying in order to be whole and free i need um i think she says i need to live in two dimensions which is a kind of allusion to something aldington said to her when he was kind of grappling with his desire for her and also his desire for Arabella and he says something like I would give her a mind and I would give you a body <laughs> and she's um I think yeah it's this question of you know which we still talk about you know how to be how to be whole and multiple yeah. and you know how to be a woman and a writer and sure. have those things not be incompatible and that's something I think all of these women were grappling with and HD is someone who addresses that very explicitly and very powerfully I think and you know much later in her life than the period that she was living there but it did mm-hmm. this period set off for her these questions which and I guess you know setting up home and experimenting and living in a different way even if it didn't bring her much happiness at the time it did set off these questions which mm-hmm. she asked throughout her life. Following these women's minds, let's get let's get to these the two great academics in this book. In fact, these are one of my favourite chapters, really, all <laughs> chapters on Jane Harrison and Eileen Power, about whom I knew shamefully little, Eileen Power. Um, and I've now ordered copies of Medieval People and Medieval so Nunnery. Good, so good. Yes, yes. They're really 700 pages, but surprisingly I'm up for it. fun. I'm <laughs> totally up for it. But actually, Nunnery raises, raises the subject that I, I, I want to ask you about, which is you bring out a very fascinating comparison between the opportunity for these women to live in college. Mm. We'll, we'll talk in a minute about the fact they couldn't actually get jobs in colleges to start with. But let's think about, there's the model of academia with its cloisters and its servants and its dining halls mm. and its circles of clever people. And then here's this other model of the square. Mm. And clearly both Harrison and Eileen Power are very, very aware of those as, as models of how to live and choosing between them. Mm. How, how do you think the Bloomsbury Square offered them something different from the college? Well, I think both of them, and Dorothy Sayers, 
as well, I guess, or, or her character, Harriet Vane, grapple with that question of, yeah, of how to live and whether, whether, it's, whether living in an in a institution or a community can offer you, you know, if, you're, if you're in an institution, you don't have to worry about you know, life admin. There are people who will you know, help you with the cooking, cleaning you. Your whole life is just devoted to I miss intellect. it so much. <laughs> I just miss dinner <laughs> being at half past seven. <laughs> And Harriet in Dorothy Sayers' novel Gordy Knight, her character Harriet Vane, who in fact who lives at Mecklenburg Square, gets called back to her old Oxford college to address the situation with a poison pen. Um, and she is kind of a cipher for Sayers, I guess, and she asks exactly that about she's quite tempted by the academic life and she is sort of wondering whether to go back, but she's also asking this question, which Sayers herself asked through her life and never really found the answer to in life, but sort of does in fiction of whether it's poss- whether it's better to to kind of absent yourself from the world and live a, a kind of ivory tower existence, or whether it's possible to you know, to live a kind of intellectual life, you know, within perhaps within a family or within a relationship or within a community that's that's not at the university. And I think I mean Eileen Power and Jane Harrison are both academics who were were sort of excluded or well some to some degree excluded or not made entirely welcome within institutions mm. i mean jane harrison to more of an extreme because she did she wasn't given jobs for years and was often told it was because she was a woman and it wasn't until she was 48 she went back to Newnham on a fellowship specifically designed for former pupils um, that she You made the comparison between Harrison and oh, which, sorry which is her contemporary who goes and immediately gets oh, Gilbert his Murray. course Gilbert Murray 23 with a salary So they're both graduating and the man goes and gets his professorship Yeah and spends the rest of his life I guess in within the institution I mean Gilbert Murray does loads of of amazing stuff outside it as well but I think both Harrison mm-hmm. and Power who who was working within an institution the LSE which uh, where she was you know largely considered an equal amongst the faculty but there was always a gender pay gap and there was she still faced not being taken seriously in lots of ways but I think both of them the reason maybe most both of them were attracted to the the square model as opposed to the the nunnery yeah. model was um, Power even says to a friend, something like the reason I had to leave Cambridge was that the study of English medieval nunneries, uh, or no, just living in a Cambridge college and studying nunneries made me made it clear to me that I had to find a different way. But they both were they were you know thoroughly scholarly and thoroughly intellectual, but they also wanted to carve out a different way of living as a scholar, I think. And I think both of them, particularly Harrison, maybe thought, you know, if the institution isn't going to offer women degrees, for example, which she campaigned for Cambridge to do for years, and they didn't until 1948, both of them wanted wanted to bring different people into their scholarship. I think Power did so much broadcasting to children because she, in fact, didn't publish as much as, you know, most of her male contemporaries did because so much of the work that she was doing through her life was collaborations and um, editing work and broadcasting and writing writing textbooks for schools because she she was an economic historian and she started off her career by writing these amazing works of social history which uh, medieval people focuses on women and sort of working class people in medieval times and she insisted that, you know, as Wolf says, that history shouldn't just be the biography of biographies of great men, but actually, you know, the everyday lives and concerns of, of ordinary people could be and should be exactly what history addresses. And we're not going to see women as important in the present if we're not interested in their histories and what's been important to them through the years. And you think of the the legacy of that thinking, what started there and then with this new kind of economically focused social history mm. and, and and then went on through Jane Thurston and Margaret Spufford mm, yeah, and, it, you know, it's so rich and it's such a radical tradition still. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. And I guess what she what happened after she moved to the LSE and um, she became, she was quite involved with the League of Nations and she kind of turned, as she could see you know, how world politics was kind of combusting, she, mm-hmm. she believed that, what, that her duty as a historian and as a, as a scholar was to, was to 
turn her history writing very much towards the present. And I think this is something that Tawny and Howard Lasky and lots of the others at LSE were interested in. People like Toynbee, who is a good friend of hers, and H.G. Wells as well. She wanted to write world history and she wanted it not just be for, to be for other academics. Mm. She wanted it to be for the public and particularly for children because she could see that the way to prevent war happening in the future was to teach children not just British history in isolation but to teach them about the whole world you know to teach them about about China and India and where, which were both places that she'd been to and um, to give a sense that of history as a collaborative enterprise and you know and she uses the phrase citizens of the world as does Jane Harrison actually it was quite eerie when I was doing the research and was reading these these kind of manifestos for history which were also their manifestos for the time they were living in but also you know it could be a manifesto for the present definitely and they both couch their um, manifestos in terms of community that that that, um, in in teaching children history you're allowing them to become part of a larger community Community than that formed by their immediate class yeah. or, or nation. And yeah. It's such a powerful sort of driver for, for education, isn't it? Yeah. Really, really politically is. motivated. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. It's, that was something I found yeah, interesting in writing. You know, the book starts off in Mecklenburg Square, but none of them were, you know, was, was insular in any way in their thinking. Mm. And, you know, Wolf took up Eileen Power and Jane Harrison's work late at the end of her life when, mm. when she was living in the square and she she was kind of facing quite a lot of accusations about her own sort of class hypocrisy and she kind of took that seriously and took it to heart and she could see that, you know, that in lots of ways Bloomsbury was, you know, open to accusations of elitism or whatever mm. and she, you know, was uncomfortable with it and I think, you know, it's so interesting reading her diaries to see her really self-questioning and kind of grappling with her own position in a in a fast-changing world. And her final project, or which she never completed, was going to be this amazing sort of history of English literature told through the character of a non, um, which reaches back to Room of One's Own, where she says so often you know, a non has been a woman. Um, and so she she started reading history books which could which were going to help her to write this kind of alternative history of England and she she describes buying a packet of cigarettes and Eileen Power at a sort of newsstand it's such a shame she never finished that book so it would have been it would have changed I think the way that we think about Wolf probably so do you can you see Power's direct influence on the way Wolf starts to think about history or is it just that they're both working in the same seam I suppose and and shifting our sense away from politics action Mm. military history to where the chairs are who's in the kitchen yeah yeah power talks about writing about the kitchens of history and I think it's her sense of of kind of what's important and what to look for and and her sense of history as being you know, being fun and being social and but I think it's probably Harrison's influence you see more yeah. maybe on the structure of, of what survives of what would have been anon because she wrote a lot about ancient community and how she had this whole theory in this book Ancient Art and Ritual which I think Wolf got for Christmas in 1923 which was all about how art and Greek tragedy and drama actually came out of the, this sort of ritual dance which women worshippers would have done for the good of the wider community and she, Jane Harrison's, I mean the sort of thrust of her of her work was to look back beyond the kind of literary depictions of the Homeric gods as this kind of pantheon led by Zeus, the patriarch, heading a adulterous patriarch of a nuclear family. And she she said that long before that was the accepted view of Greek religion, there was there was a worship focusing on mother goddesses, which which was done in the community by groups of women. And so so her work was really arguing that art came out of community, uh, which I think was really kind of ripe and interesting for for Wolf and that was going to be sort of the starting point of of her project and kind of shows her own yeah thinking about class I guess this idea of communality which also is so inflected by the 
the time she was living in the in the Second World War, when she was in partly living in the square, partly living in the country, was feeling very divided between this sort of solitary life that she wanted, but also this sense of an impulse towards communal living. I think. Yeah, coming on to coming on to Wolf, I I tend to think of that last period of her life as very much rooted in 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 Rodma. I was so mm. struck by. The fact that going, trying to get herself to sleep during an air raid in the Sussex countryside, what she uses to send herself to sleep is an idea of think of London, think of the Thames at London Bridge. And, and that sense that that is what is sturdy somehow and will get her through the, the night seemed very, very potent to me and made me sort of value more that experience of, of Mecklenburg Square that she had for such a short time. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was... I guess it was an odd period for her. She never really settled into that house. Mm. She, they didn't really want to move there. They were happy in Tavistock Square until this building works on this hotel mm. just made it kind of impossible for her to get anything done. And she describes turning up and looking over their new house and thinking, which of these rooms am I going to die in? Yeah. Um, and I guess the house move, yeah, was all was tied up with the war and with sort of inconvenience and with a sense of not being settled and then living between town and country and she was yeah she was asking again perhaps a bit reluctantly these these questions about mm. how how she wanted to live um until the square was bombed and the decision was made and mm. she never lived in london again mm. do you think that today when presumably we can't really afford to buy um, house on Mecklenburg Square. <laughs> I um, last I checked, they were about two million pounds. I did look over some. Oh, a really yeah. nice estate agent Good. showed them to me, and I think he was quite excited that maybe someone was going to buy sort of two yeah. of these houses. And I kept asking, "So is that original?" And he was sort of saying, "Don't worry, it's all been renovated." And <laughs> <laughs> We got rid of those nasty curtains. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, you'll be moving in next year then. Um, I, I was wondering whether you feel sort of optimistic for people today being able to invent the kinds of domestic space, arrange the chairs in the way that they feel they need to. Or, and do you think any of these women can still be role models for us today? arranging our rooms. <laughs> I don't know about arranging the rooms. I think it's probably, I mean, it's, I think the way they can be role models probably most is in, is in the, the less literal side of, of the room of one's own and the way that they kind of arrange their lives. I think it was, you know, lots of the questions that, that they are asking are questions that we we still ask and you know address I think a lot of contemporary writing addresses similar questions and I think you know talking to friends we're asking the same mm. the same questions you know about how to how to be yeah taken seriously and yeah how to how to arrange rooms I don't think it, there's I don't think we've found no. a solution and that there's and not the one housing s- prices aren't going to help no, us no with indeed that. and there's not one question and one solution for when one's in the early 20s just out of university you give us two women who are in that situation you know mm-hmm. raring to go but you also give us Ionian Power through her, you know, key middle-aged mm. professional years, and you give us Jane Harrison in her seventies, mm. still wondering, how can I, how can I live differently? How can it be better? How can I form a different community? I think mm. that sort of stages of life that you give us is mm. is very moving. Actually, yeah. Well, that was something that was so fascinating about putting together lives which you know which were brought together really just by this coincidence yeah. they did happen to live in the square and you know as you said it sort of could have been other people but the fact that it was them and putting them together and thinking about them alongside each other the the resonances and the differences and the sort of eerie similarities i think resonated a lot as i was you know researching and writing about them and yeah, which which was fortifying, mm. um, and a reminding that there are yeah there are no answers or or there's no one way to you know to answer mm. those questions and they all faced they all had different sort of privileges and they had different difficulties um, and some of them intersected and yeah, yeah but they. So none of them are exactly role models, but no. well, they are. But it's a, a creative, <laughs> a creative act anyway. Yeah. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. 
But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs and medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now, Francesca, obviously, quite soon we're going to be turning the whole bookshop into one of Eileen Pye's <laughs> kitchen dances. Yeah, yeah, we've got our You've got, morning dress. We've got the morning dress <laughs> ready. But I think before that, maybe we should, uh, people would like to ask some questions. I just wondered um, whether you've used the word echoes during the course of conversation this evening, whether some of those echo, echoes were revelatory when you were actually engaged in the research. So somebody like John Cornus, mm. were you expecting him to appear in two no. of those women's lives? <laughs> it must have been really exciting when you came across that. Yeah, it was. I think that was the moment where I think I realised that this sort of weird conglomeration of coincidences could be a book was when I realised that the same man had written incredibly insulting novels about two of these women. <laughs> yeah, he's a really strange character. And then he pops up again because he was a Russian translator um, who overlapped with Joan Harrison, weirdly. But yeah, he was, John Kornos was a sort of a failed imagist poet who encountered HD. He, he was actually engaged to Arabella, the upstairs lodger, and he went away to Russia and sort of asked HD to look after Arabella. And when he came back, she was kind of having an affair with HD's husband and he entirely blamed HD. I mean, of all the people he could have blamed for that situation, he alighted on it being HD's fault and wrote this novel, which I think the Spectator reviewer said that it had the most unpleasant heroine in all of literature. And HD was was pretty upset. But then a few years later, he had a relationship with Dorothy Sayers. I never quite worked out how they met because he had lived in Mecklenburg Square as well. He'd lived right at the top and given Arabella his room. And I don't know whether they met there or you know, through the landlady who who says was quite on quite good terms with or what. But through the year that she spent in the square when she was trying to start writing her own first novel, she was also grappling with this relationship with this older male writer who did not think crime fiction was you know was a was a good pursuit and who really I think ground her down. And it wasn't until much later when she'd had some success and to reflected on these years that she was able to write this amazing series of letters back to him where she really told him you know what how hard he'd made things for her um and he but then he wrote a um a horrible book about about her and and she also wrote a book about um, a detective novel where a character with a lot of resemblances to him gets murdered by harriet yes (laughs) yes being a crime writer has distinct (laughs) benefits in that yes um and, and, she, and she said when she moved to the square, that's all I want, to be left alone. Mm. <laughs> Didn't get that. Yeah. <laughs> but oh. that was a total surprise, and there were other surprises, I think. That was, it was mm. always exciting when there was another moment when I 
I saw that the Eileen Power had Dorothy Sayers in her address book, and I sort of, you know, wondered what had happened there. And then I, I went, I went to Wheaton College in Illinois to see the Dorothy Sayers archive, and I found this letter um, or a couple of letters, and it was clear that they'd met at a party and started talking about books. You can imagine them just sort of, you know, no small talk. It's just the sort of meeting of minds. And Eileen Power wrote to. Sayers and was enclosing her own copy of a book which she said this seems exactly what you want and then she says at the end it was such a pleasure to meet you mm-hmm. which I thought was sort of gave me goosebumps as this realisation that, you know, that, that these women themselves when they did cross paths they sensed this you know this commonality and that was very moving yeah yeah Thank you so much for this talk and for talking so much about HD. Um, I did my um, MA dissertation. I recently finished on HD's Helen in Egypt, so it's cool to be in a room with someone who knows what that is. Um, <laughs> but I was looking at in Helen in Egypt HD's relationship to uh, her American and sort of British national identities, and a lot of the work that's been done on that wants to peg HD sort of as an American. Um, using her early autobiographical prose that talks about her time in Pennsylvania and these things like that. And so I think it's really interesting that you are looking at this particular place that she lived in London that she revisits over and over and over again and sort of establishing who she is. And so I was wondering if in your research you kind of came across this idea of her being rooted in this very particular physical space in Britain as connected to how she saw herself connected to the nation of Britain at all, or if it influenced mm. a sense of her as a citizen of, as a British citizen. Mm, interesting. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I, I think she, in this year, she felt so ambivalent about her relationship to America, I guess, because I don't think she really went back to America after no. she left it, did she ever even? And, and I think she felt like an outsider in Britain, and she writes quite a lot about that sense of people being kind of suspicious of her, especially given America's kind of position in the war. And I think she, I mean, she spent a lot of time in Europe after this period, and she and I think a lot of these women kind of considered themselves European in lots of ways, or, you know, didn't feel particularly tied to a national identity with all of the kind of imperial and sort of patriarchal connotations. I think that that she, you know, Wolf in Three Guineas says, you know, as a woman, I have no country, my country's the whole world. And I think that was something that kind of resonated when I thought about all of them. But I'd like to think more about it. <laughs> it's really intriguing that they can all live in this absolutely central London square and yet be yeah. outside, and they be cultivating this idea of themselves as outside. Yeah, but I guess yeah. also Bloomsbury was so international at that time. I mean, it was yeah. it was so close to the railway stations, which had opened up mm. quite recently, and so it did feel like it was a place of connection. And because of the houses being divided up into boarding houses and hotels, mm. um, and being so close to the universities, there were students, and you know, it was a kind of a hub. It was so if you wanted to live a life where you might, you know, bump into, you know, Russians or Indians or you know Chinese, then that Bloomsbury was a place where that could happen. And I loved reading kind of memoirs and novels about Bloomsbury and you know, by more widely for that research and came across, you know, there are so many interesting figures. I mean there's this guy Mulkraj Anand who who whose kind of autobiography is called Conversations in Bloomsbury and he concludes by saying something like Bloomsbury is so much wider than Virginia Woolf's drawing room. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, up to the Dorothy Alsayas chapter of your book and I'm finding it just super interesting. And one of the really interesting things for me is that there are loads of really famous names in this book that are the uh, smaller characters. And we Mm. see these really huge figures through the eyes of these five women we see Ezra Pound or, or D.H. Lawrence, but only through the lens of how H.D. would have seen them and the impact they have on, on her career. And obviously, Pound as an editor to H.D. is a much more ambivalent figure than Pound as an editor to Eliot, for example. We see London the same. We see London through the lens of this one square. And I wonder if taking that approach to it, uh, if you... Um, if your opinion or, or your view of any of these uh, famous people, or even of this time period, changed by seeing it through the eyes of, of your subjects? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think with HD in particular, it was important to see these 
yeah, these like mammoth characters like Ezra Pound through her eyes because she kind of spent her life avoiding being seen through their eyes. I mean, Pound was the one who gave her these initials HD and and sort of named her and he sent her poems to this big influential magazine under that name and she was kind of flattered and excited but also never really liked that name um, and she was sort of stuck with it and names were so important for HD. You didn't really want to be a wood dryad either. <laughs> no, she didn't really like that yeah. either. Although she didn't really like the surname Doolittle either, so it was sort of... She, yeah, all of the novels that she wrote through her life, she gave different pseudonyms to, and she thought a lot about the implications of, of naming. So I think she was always kind of stepping out of the shadow of, of people like Pound. And, and I guess, yeah, in terms of how we would still see sort of modernist history, it felt important that, you know, they were part of her story, mm-hmm. but they, they are secondary characters and it's I guess and with London as well which is nice that you mentioned it's kind of I think seeing a different London is something that Wolf writes about a lot I mean I in the room in I sort of opened the book with this statue which you can still see um just at the top of Guild Place which uh, was Wolf's favorite statue in London and it's just this woman kneeling down and there's no kind of sign she doesn't have a name although she does if you look it up well still she's just the woman of Samaria um, and Wolf said that you know she could she got so much more out of that statue than she did out of all of the you know, statues of old men outside Parliament <laughs> and it's a kind of an emblem for the different kind of history I think that she and Power and Harrison are all looking to write in a history that isn't just public deeds of you know great men of empire but it might just be you know a, a woman <laughs> on her own <laughs> kneeling um, and yeah, right. It might even be the yeah. landlady or the cook. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.